You're listening to Simulcast, a podcast about healthcare simulation. All right, so welcome to our next episode of the Simulcast Journal Club. I'm Victoria Brazel and I'm joined again by Ben Simon to bring you one big article for the month and a few others that are popping around in the literature. How are you, Ben? Yeah, good, thanks. Nice to be back. I've uh, missed having these chats over the last month. Yes, you're on holidays and, of course, we had a big week at the Simulation Congress, but now back to the uh, everyday. Why don't you um, tell us what's been going on this month with the selected article and what kind of discussion did we have? Absolutely. So this month we looked at a paper from Simulation in Healthcare uh, called It is Time to Consider Cultural Differences in Debriefing. And it was by Chung et al. and published in uh, June 2013. And essentially this article uh, addresses a really important blind spot for many Western simulation educators, which is that we're not the only ones doing it. Uh, Chung et al. opened the paper by establishing that there's been this extensive growth of sim-based education in Southeast Asia. And they sort of quote a few conferences and then they look back at simulation literature and quote a number of articles that highlight the importance of debriefing for learning, strategies for creating psychological safety, and the need to communicate in a frank, open and honest manner. But then they acknowledge that actually all of these papers they quote are from Western cultures and that what works in the West might not generalize to all of these other new countries that are starting to take on board sim-based education. In particular, they state that being debriefed may be more difficult for trainees who come from cultures where the motivation to, affor- to, to defer to authority outweighs the choice to disclose views that may seem to contradict those of the instructor. So to highlight cultural differences in communication, the authors utilise that classic case of the Korean airline disaster featured in Malcolm Gladwell's Outliers. Um, and in it, sort of the authors explain that the investigation of this crash that happened found that the communication dysfunction between Western traffic controllers, who are kind of this New York brash kind of communicators, and the Korean pilots who were using this very polite, mitigated style of p- speech, uh, contributed heavily to the crash. And in describing this event, they kind of provide a clear example of a traditional sort of East versus West communication breakdown. But perhaps more importantly for our learning, they look at how those problems were fixed and they argue, and I'm going to quote them, it's important for people with experience of the local culture to develop solutions that will be most effective for that culture. And in essence, what they're really saying is that until you understand someone's frames, then you can't help them find a solution. Uh, which should be a principle that's probably close to many of our hearts. But to truly understand someone's frame, they argue, you've also got to understand their culture because it's a huge part of how your frames are made. So to perhaps highlight the complexity of this issue, they describe further attributes of Korean culture that conflict with Western cultural norms. So things like uh, primary school education's emphasis on memorization over critical thinking stronger hierarchical gradients between medical and nursing staff and junior and senior colleagues, and really kind of a general fear of saying the wrong answer. And then to finish off, the article provides a series of questions for future research, such as what motivates Asian students to be active in sim-based learning? What are the elements of a safe learning environment in different cultures? And what aspects of culture are safety neutral? And what aspects may actually have effects on patient safety and patient care? Um, And I have to say, reading that last bit was a little bit disappointing to me because there are a lot of exciting questions there and 
Uh, I haven't done a formal lit review, but I'm not sure many of them are being actively kind of answered at this stage. So looking at the blog's responses, um, I found this month particularly hard to summarize because the paper really kind of made us all reflect on our own assumptions and we kind of jumped into this lovely kind of campfire mode where we all just kind of sat around and discussed our own preconceptions and talked about our own backgrounds and what we'd learned from interacting with different cultures in a simulated and also in our real clinical settings. I think there were two big themes that came up repeatedly as being a somewhat uh, sort of common experience. One is that it seemed consistent among non-Western cultures that the power differentials between teacher and learner were more pronounced. And Nima uh, Al-Saba summarized that beautifully with this phrase from her culture, which was, I am a salve of him who has taught me one single letter. And I'm going to confess, Vic, that my response to that phrase was kind of this mix of admiration for its poetry and also just this little bit of recoil in, in that it's such a beautiful gesture of respect to those who teach us for it to be so kind of baked into the culture in that phrase. But at the same time, it's so deferential that it's a little bit overwhelming for me as this uh, spoiled little Westerner. Well, I think you're right. Yeah, I think medical education has taken a bit of a journey in the last, uh, even in our Western culture in the last 20 years. I don't think that would have been so misplaced. It might even have matched us quite well when I was at medical school. But I think you're right, the trends, at least where I work and where others who I spend a lot of time with work, are in the other direction. Yeah, and I found that a little bit confronting, I've got to, I've got to be honest. Um, I think the second theme that came up was that mitigated speech is a very common communication technique outside the West. And with these principles that kind of came up, I think Mary Fay kind of summarized it nicely where she said the paper promotes reflection. She said, this turns the lens inward to the debriefer becoming aware of personal biases that can influence us. Maybe that quiet learners aren't not participating. Maybe she's a receiver-oriented communicator. Or that everyone needs to learn to speak up or maybe perhaps I need to figure out the best communication pathway for learners from cultures who espouse mitigation talk. And then the final comment was from Shaggy. I'm going to give her a shout out because I just really loved how reflective her comments were this month. And she talked about her experience of being of Middle Eastern descent, being raised in French Canada and feeling pretty Western. But then she describes this experience as follows. And I'm going to quote like a paragraph of her talk. She said, I'd assumed I had more of a Western upbringing and hadn't given much thought about how my Middle Eastern background could affect my discussions in debriefing. I'd had assumed this till recently when I was told by my simulation mentor that there was an imbalance in our debriefing the debriefer sessions. Unfortunately, I'm more of a taker than a giver. Basically, I don't have much constructive comments about her debriefing <laughs> skills, but after reading this article, I've been pondering on the reasons why I haven't been able to give back. Could it be that her approach is flawless or maybe I just don't have enough of a critical mind or is it that I haven't been aware of the impact of my cultural background and that deferring to a mentor a senior and a potential figure of authority are still things I unknowingly do maybe it's a bit of everything and I think she's right that it's a bit of everything but I wanted to close on her comment because I think despite acknowledging all these cultural differences, I think there was also acknowledgement of a lot of commonality. Um, I don't think that Western culture has suddenly absolved itself of these challenges with dealing with hierarchical power, power gradients. I mean, we even talk about it a little bit on the Journal Club itself and trying to get people to comment who are feeling a bit intimidated when uh, Adam and Walter jump on. Um, so thanks for all the comments this month. It was very enlightening. Um, 
and I hope we have the same warmth next month. Yeah, thanks, Ben. I agree. It was definitely a pause and reflect kind of experience reading the paper and reading those comments. And I think you're right, we certainly go finding cultural differences, but there's also plenty of cultural similarities. I think one of the challenges for us, particularly in simulation, is that we have vested a deal of superiority in lowering those hierarchy gradients in saying people should speak up and speak often. And that is more or less culturally appropriate. And I think we think that people should need to really change their culture. And it's hard to know because certainly some of these behaviours do seem to be effective, but I'm not sure that they're effective if they are culturally incongruent, i.e. if we tell a bunch of Koreans that they need to speak up and question their bosses in a sim course, if they go home and do that, I suspect that's not very effective for them either. So it really makes us think about what we think of as good teamwork and communication as well. For me, this had a, a particular interest just in terms of timing because I was down at the Australian Indigenous Doctors Association conference at the end of last week. And so it made me also think about other cultural issues that we've got. Obviously, this article fo focused on Asian cultures, but it occurred to me, embarrassingly, that I had never run a scenario focused on Indigenous health issues involving Indigenous simulated patients. And... Obviously, there's some justifications I can find for that, or at least some excuses I can find for that, but I think one of the motivations for me is maybe to think a little bit more about how we could improve that. Yeah, absolutely. I guess um, I do just want to mention Peter Dickman's response as well. So he was our expert of the month, and he was one of the authors of the paper. Now, you're, uh, am I right that you're pretty good mates with with Peter? Oh, all of us would like to be very good mates with Peter. I, uh, <laughs> Peter works at the Danish Institute for Medical Simulation and I visited them when I was there in Copenhagen. So I know Peter a little bit and in fact we had uh, quite a long chat when I was there and he's a super smart guy, also one of the editors of Advances in Simulation that we have our collaboration with. Yeah, and so Look, he was kind enough to give us some pros about these issues that were raised, and it was, uh, <laughs> it was such a great response this month because there were moments in his writing that were just so poetic about culture and how it affects us, and then there was the occasional moment where <laughs> I had absolutely no idea what he was talking about in some phrases, <laughs> and I had to ask him for some clarification, which he provided in the response we've got up there. Uh, but it was kind of this nice meta moment of speaking to this kind of cultural expert and realizing that we still sometimes can have some communication hiccups when we're talking about this stuff. To give a little background of that, of course, he is German working in Denmark and when he writes probably does most of it in English. So yeah. they're, they're <laughs> language things, but I think they also speak to him personally having a deal of cultural uh, exposure that's more than I guess I certainly get in a day. Yeah, absolutely. So it was really interesting. And I think at the heart of Peter's response is this call to look inward and reflect on what makes you who you are as an educator and a person. And he talks about how culture permeates our frames and even our physical selves when it comes to things like beauty ideals and how we dress and how we want to look. And he gives examples of all these differences between us, but then he brings it back by arguing that we can't help each other if we don't approach things with an open mind, uh, which kind of echoes your comments about um, maybe not telling all the Koreans how to debrief. 
So he says, look, when you're debriefing, be honest about your cultural perspective and be honest about what you think is best, but also be open and listen and listen to what the other side thinks and hear what they think might work for them. And then he finally brings it back to this hypothetical patient, Esther, and he says, look, how are we best going to help her? Maybe we help her best in a Western setting by having these big open debriefs where we talk about our feelings. And, and maybe we help her in another setting by actually just having a clear demonstration of best practice. And that's probably okay. I also enjoyed his response and I would encourage people to go and have a look at that. You're listening to Simulcast. All right, well, we might move on to the uh, other papers, if that's all right, Ben. Yeah, sounds good to me. I'm looking forward to it. All right, so we've got three papers that are loosely linked together as our papers of the month. The first of these is titled Going Professional, Using Point of View Filming to Facilitate Preparation for Practice in Final Year Medical Students. And this is a paper by Thompson et al. from Aberdeen in the UK, and it's published in BMJ Stell, uh, August this year. And essentially what this group were aiming to do is to prepare their final year medical students for the real work that a junior doctor does. So going on a ward round and doing all the tasks like prescribing, like taking notes on the ward round, having to deal with emergencies. They recognise that one of the problems with running all of the medical students through scenarios that try and capture that experience is very resource intensive. And so they really aim to create an efficient experience, learning experience, in order to fulfil these same learning objectives. So what they actually did was they created a scenario that looked just like a ward round. And they had a faculty member who acted as a foundation doctor or we would call an intern and they actually wore a GoPro camera on their head and recorded the experience of them being on this simulated ward round. Uh, the other people who were on this simulated ward round included patients and other members of the healthcare team and these were also played by faculty members. And then basically the foundation doctor did stuff. They participated in a handover, they documented a ward round entry, they wrote a discharge letter and a prescription, they looked at x-rays and ECGs and they did some other prescribing. And so what the team then did was they used the footage from the GoPro camera to make a video or series of videos that then translated into an interactive two-hour lecture that they did with a really large group of students. And so the video footage, I think, from what I can tell from the article, served as a trigger to a series of tasks and questions that the students had to participate in. So a pretty cool thing to do, and although that filming took a lot to do, it really was just the faculty members who were filming it. None of the students actually had to attend the face-to-face -face simulation, as it were. So... Interestingly, in terms of methodology, the evaluation was not entirely spelled out to me. They basically didn't really describe their methods, but they went straight on to what were the results. And it looked as though the questions they asked was, how prepared do you feel for practice? Uh, what are your areas of most and least confidence? And what were the skills that benefited most from using the GoPro? And I think this is a little bit hard because they didn't actually have a control group doing that. And the short answer is that the students enjoyed it. They had some areas they were least confident in, but that didn't seem to really be affected particularly uh, 
by the GoPro camera um, itself. Yeah, so when they were asked how prepared for practice, 80% described themselves as prepared to some extent, and it's pretty hard to know what to do with a statistic uh, exactly like that. So I think what they can say is that it was an efficient way of doing this. I think they can say it was a highly acceptable way of doing this, but I'm not sure that they can give an idea about how that compares with students who are actually going through a simulated scenario themselves. So I guess my take home from this is that this is the discussion we have to have about resources versus outcomes and for me that was really the take home for this paper. Here is definitely a light version of simulation that's largely observational and I think it actually fits rather well with um, Stephanie O'Regan's work on observers getting a lot out of simulation. Uh, and it's hard to know though how that matches up to actually doing the sim. I think also it just shows the significance of the planning and post-production. They obviously had to put a lot of time into that, but then they've got a nice two-hour resource that they can reuse over and over again uh, each year. I suppose my only other comment that I had with it was uh, that, you know, using faculty members, I thought, um, you know, I would have used more simulated patients to get a somewhat richer experience because I think faculty members always role play certain stereotypes they have in their head about these different things but I think that was really a minor point. So for me I'm not sure that the papers proved anything but I think it certainly raises this question about are we getting over specified for the kind of simulation that we're doing for our medical students. Uh, what did you think Ben? Yeah um, I'd have to say just echoing those thoughts about the data analysis and I sometimes find we've looked at a couple papers now which are more kind of innovation papers where it feels like the authors are trying to say this is this cool thing we did and we want to share it with you but there seems to be this pressure that you have to back it up with a bunch of sort of numbers to justify its validity and sometimes I wonder I don't know you'd be the expert on this in terms of do we need to do that if we're trying to present a innovation and trying to share that in this the simulation community do we have to always back it up with data or do we need to look at those two things separately? Yes and I think this is going to come up in one of the other papers should we be using quantitative methods when the significance of how well students feel prepared for something that they have yet to experience is really hard to uh, understand isn't it just because the final yeah. year medical students feel well prepared for describing for prescribing who would know if they're actually Absolutely. going to prescribe well or not they're really not in the best position to judge so unfortunately that level one uh, evaluation is difficult to interpret I think uh, and yet you're right I think coming from a quantitative background as many health professionals are the translation out of that mode of uh, investigation is actually quite a journey and many of us don't have those qualitative skills that make us feel we could confidently step into another way of understanding the experience. Yeah, I did I did also find it cute that the med students rated themselves as 80% prepared to some extent, but they're not confident in decision-making, emergency clinical situations, prescribing, administering drugs, and prioritization. It's kind of like, that's, that's basically all the things. That's all the things you need to do next year, but <laughs> you're still 80% prepared. We might come back um, and ask them after that. Yeah. <laughs> But it did, th this article did actually take me back to a discussion that we had about that uh, Singaporean study about observer learning and stress in sim. And at that point, we kind of talked about 
there was clearly benefits to being activated in a sim. And then it seemed to be with Steph, uh, Steph O'Regan's work and stuff that uh, there's clearly almost, if not as much, benefit in being an active, engaged observer in the sim. And we were kind of talking about at what point, you know, if you just have people watching a video that they're not involved in, do you lose that sense of activation and that learning benefit? Um, and it seemed to me, I thought one really interesting strategy that you, these guys used was that because they were filming from a first-person perspective, I thought even though it is kind of just a video in some ways, it encourages mental projection and empathy about the experience onto the observers. And I just wonder whether that would help keep them being those active meaning makers that we're hoping for. Yeah, that's a good point. And you're probably, you're probably a gamer or something, Ben, that I don't know about. But certainly first-person shooter yeah. <laughs> games are the ones that I know about where you actually look like you're the guy carrying the gun in the game. And obviously the gamers do it for a reason and it probably does activate certain things that have a big impact on people. So I actually think your line of thinking here is smart. I have no idea if it's right. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> we'll, we could do a paper on that or something. <laughs> Simulcast. Cool. All right. So let's going to move on to the next paper now. And, in fact, this is... Close to home, and in fact, from Ben's home institution, albeit conducted at a time before you started there, Ben. And the title, yeah, that's right. The title of this paper is "Evaluation of a Multiple Encounter in Situ Simulation for Orientation of Staff to a New Pediatric Emergency Service: A Single Group Pretest Post-Test Survey." So this is by Michelle Davison and colleagues at Prince Charles and also published in BMJ Stell and it's online first at the moment. This was described as a multiple encounter in situ simulation that the team ran in preparation for the opening of a new emergency department. And in the background, they spend a bit of time, I think, quite nicely identifying what the issues are, both real and perceived in terms of a new emergency department. So clearly there are orientation needs. Some of these are to physical layout. And related to that, but slightly separate, is to job requirements. Because these might also be different simply as a result of the physical layout. And I know from our own move to the new emergency department, that was certainly the case. And also highlighting that this orientation process and change needs to recognise that there are social aspects and that it causes anxiety. So their aim in running their simulation was to orient staff and do an evaluation as to how well that had done, to identify design flaws and system issues prior to opening the department, and to assess self-reported role confidence and anxiety of staff. So the way that they did this was that they ran two four-hour simulations one week apart. And essentially they developed eight scenarios, and it looked to me like they are in quite some detail, of variable acuity and nature. And in each of these scenarios, there was a paediatric patient represented by a mannequin and parents who were represented by facilitators. And there is some detail about the scenarios uh, in the paper, but they're the kinds of things you would expect to see in a paediatric ED. And after that, they gave the participants who were staff in the paediatric ED, a 12-item questionnaire. In fact, they gave it to them before and they gave them to them after the simulation. 
So the results are displayed on a couple of tables in the paper. The first of these illustrates that there really was a very wide range of staff who participated, both in terms of levels, so there were trainees and consultants from a medical point of view, but there were also allied health staff, nursing staff who were the biggest group, social workers and others. So they really did capture a range of the staff who were likely to be working in the ED. Then in table two, they present what I found quite a complicated table where they look at self-reported confidence and orientation adequacy scores of the participants before the simulation and after the simulation. And they do that for each of the scenarios. And I think they purport to show that there's improvement and there certainly is a change in terms of increased confidence and orientation adequacy from the pre-scores to the post-scores. But the magnitude of those I actually found quite hard to be able to interpret again because I'm not sure what the difference in a Likert scale score of 4.02 to post-SIM 4.16 really means. And so although they've got statistical significance, I'm not sure how clinically or operationally significant some of these differences are. I think the other thing, just by way of sort of comment, because it is hard when you're doing Likert item type research, but Whenever Likert items are reduced to a continuous variable, I think we're treading on slightly shaky ground. And also when they're averaged. So what we don't know is that, for instance, half the staff might have felt less confident and half might have felt much more confident, but combined there was a very slight increase. And so it doesn't really reflect the variance that could exist within the group if you use a reductionist approach with Likert scores of averaging them and using them as a continuous variable. So I'm happy if we want to get uh, stats experts shout me down about that one but I guess what it meant for me just as a reader was it was difficult for me to really know what impact this quite resource intensive simulation had. In their discussion uh, it was interesting, again, just harking back to our previous comments, was that this improved confidence was noted whether people were actively involved in the simulation or whether they were just observers, because there were a group of people who were observers and not directly involved. And I think for me, really, the take-home here is, once again, the same kind of similar thing. Is this an over-specified simulation for what we're trying to achieve? Because I suspect if we had a meeting and watched a video or looked at the plans for the new department, we would also get a change from the pre and the post questionnaires as well. I'm just not sure what the magnitude is compared to doing a simulation like this one. The authors themselves, I think, acknowledge that this took a huge amount of time and effort, 100 hours on the part of the first author, plus another 50 hours on the others in developing the simulation and conducting it. And the other thing that was a shame, which again they recognise, is that there was no formal recording of their second aim, which is what kind of design flaws and system issues were identified. So there were some listed in the paper, but there wasn't any systematic capturing of those. So I guess my comments with this, Ben, the aims are very broad, it is very resource intensive, and I guess we're not sure if it's worth it. Based on this, it does seem like it was moderately successful. And to be honest, I'm not sure if we're really using the right measures. I think these ideas about increased confidence probably suffer from the same thing as the first paper, but I can see, just as you said, they feel like they've got to measure something, so this seems an attractive way of doing it. But uh, tell us, what do you think, Ben?
Yeah, look, I guess uh, I had a similar experience at opening a uh, tertiary pediatric hospital and using in situ sim to try and uh, orientate the staff. And uh, for a variety of reasons, it ended up being more of a mental rehearsal and a walkthrough than a high fidelity sim, which actually worked pretty well for the goals that we were making. And some of the issues that I can only reflect on from my own experience was you're putting in so much effort to try and get this hospital running. You really want to get some data out there. Um, but And like at scale seems like a reasonable kind of efficient way of doing it. But I wanted to sort of put on our method nerd hat for a minute and wanted to ask you, what would you suggest instead or how can this kind of study be done better? Yeah, well, I can certainly hark back to the Simulation Congress last year when Carrie Hamilton gave us a presentation about a similar challenge but approached in a different way. So they were also opening a new paediatric ED. It was in the UK. And they actually used real children and their parents, volunteers from the community. But their focus was totally on those systems and workflow issues. And they discovered a few serious flaws before the department opened and essentially saved a huge amount of money by changing those workflows. So I think... For me, one of the things is to be a little bit pure. Are we doing this for the staff or are we doing this to analyse the systems? And I think there's a great temptation, and I have done it myself with my own in-situ simulations, is thinking that I can have my cake and eat it too. Whereas I have a feeling that we probably need to get a little more surgical in our targeting simulations. And if we're doing system stuff, we may not be able to do some of those other things that really help the staff the most. So that's one thought. Uh, the second thing is, you know, maybe we need to explore a little bit more in depth with the uh, staff who are there and actually ask them in more detailed interviews, focus groups or whatever, what has helped you here? How has it helped you? So those kind of questions that we know are much more common in qualitative research rather than saying, did it help you? Yeah, I think we, we fall into the trap as clinicians in trying to get that numbers, trying to get the data and not really thinking about qualitative data as a valid output. Simulcast. So our last paper is one that is interesting for a few reasons. One is both the paper itself, but also I'm interested in where it's published and you'll I'll tell you about that in just a minute. But the title of the paper is Respective Value of the Traditional Clinical Rotation and high fidelity simulation in the acquisition of clinical reasoning skills in medical students, a randomized controlled trial, uh, published by Lovett and colleagues, uh, in fact, an international group of authors. And it's published at a place called MedEd Publish, which I know because the editor-in-chief, Richard Hayes, is my ex-boss, uh, who's currently in Tasmania but used to work with us at Bond. And it's an interesting, I'm going to spend just a bit of time on MedEd Publish because this is essentially a post-publication peer review avenue for people who might like to, pub, who are relatively new to publishing, I think. And to give you some idea about how this works, and if you go onto the site and it's mededpublish.org, it explains this in some detail. But essentially, you send in your manuscript, they have a look at it, to make sure that it meets the basic requirements in terms of formatting and structure and English language, etc. And then it goes up. And then people get to do their commentary, both anyone who would like to 
uh, login as well as an editorial and review board that they've got. So it is a post-publication peer review process uh, that then elevates the papers that are very good to the top. They get a DOI and they are actually published. So to give you some idea about this paper, it was received on the 4th of July 2016 and it was published on the 7th of July. So I don't know too many other journals that have a three-day turnaround for that to happen. So I just thought it might be interesting for listeners to have a look at MedEd Publish, particularly if they're relatively new to it and they'd like to try and publish some of their simulation work. So a little shout-out for them. They're not paying me anything, by the way. All right, so I might uh, get on to the paper then. And before I go into their methods, I'm actually going to talk about their outcome measure because it's really critical here. So remember that going to be seeing what's the difference between just doing your standard paediatric rotation versus doing your standard paediatric rotation plus a high-fidelity simulation. And the outcome they chose to use is something called a script concordance test. And again, I always feel on dangerous ground with this, Ben, because whenever I go to medical education conferences, particularly assessment ones, and there's whole streams on script concordance tests, I know there's going to be a lot of statistics and I basically don't go, so I find myself uh, embarrassed here to be trying to explain it to people. <laughs> but the, the paper does describe it, fortunately, and uh, with a little bit of talking to some of my assessment friends, I came across a quite nice description but essentially, the script concordance test looks at the ability of individuals to undertake clinical reasoning. And the way that they do that is that the candidate gets a clinical scenario and then they get a new piece of information. So take, for example, a six-month-old presents with a fever and you're first off thinking, what is the chance of it being a serious bacterial infection? And say you get a new piece of information, which is the child is unimmunized. And they have to decide, is that going to increase or decrease the likelihood of the serious bacterial infection? And surprise, surprise, we would say, yes, it will increase it. But as you can guess, there's much more granular variations on this theme. So again, I'll direct people to a link if you'd like to read more about that. But it's a pretty well-validated approach, and it's certainly got a deal of literature behind it. So it's this ability to weight information to make a decision. So with that in mind, as the outcome measure, we're going to come back now to what they actually did. So they took the medical students on their paediatric term. All of them did their traditional format, and that looked to me a lot like it would for any paediatric rotation. They did their clinical stuff. They had problem-based learning sessions, case-based discussions, lectures, skill sessions. Half the group, or in fact half of those who chose to participate in the study, and there wasn't all of the rotation in there, underwent then a high-fidelity simulation scenario, which means they developed eight scenarios and every student got to do one, but they also watched the others. So their randomised was 22 of them did the paediatric term and had no simulation, and then 18 of them did the paediatric term plus also got the simulation. And I'd hasten to add that first group got the simulation after the testing at the end, just ethically, but their measurement, their outcome measures were done when there was still a difference between these groups in terms of doing the sim or not. And then they tested them 
They did this both before and after using the script concordance test. And again, just to give people a little feel about it, this test used 41 cases and had 90 questions. And there's some examples that are given in the paper uh, as well. And, drumroll, there was no difference between the groups. The group that did the sim did no better on the script concordance test than the group who only did the paediatric rotation. And yet, surprise, surprise, the students felt engaged and more confident, so returning to the uh, themes from the first paper. So in their discussion, they say, well, why was this? Was there just not enough sim? Uh, I don't know, sometimes 10 times 0 is 0, but maybe it was just a dose effect. Uh, they also talk a little bit about the script concordance test and wonder about recall bias because, in fact, it is the same test they received at the beginning and then six months at, at the end of the rotation, plus or minus the simulation. Uh, I know my friend Chris, Chris Nixon would say actually doing the test at the beginning was probably a really good learning strategy, so go and read Make It Stick by Brown and Co. And again, who knows if this is the right measure. For me, this was the real issue with this. Is clinical reasoning the thing that we're trying to improve with simulation? Uh, I would argue we may improve it a bit, but I think the affective, behavioural, teamwork, communication things are things where we're much more likely to see a gain, and those may not be recognised in a script concordance test. So, um, interesting study, interesting mode of publication, and uh, what do you think, Ben? Look, I struggled with the, with the emotiveness of my response to this article, and uh, part of me wanted it to be called something like, you can't teach clinical reasoning in one day. Um, but you've sort of taught me before, Vic, that there's this thing that if you're going to compare normal education plus sim and then normal education, then it's not really a valid comparison because they're still getting more time and that might explain a positive effect. But this article kind of punched me in the gut by actually finding no difference at all, which was like even worse. Um, but I agree with you that I think I wasn't sure they were testing with the right thing. Um, and I do think that they justified that a little bit understandably where they said, look, we're not assessing for huge differences in clinical reasoning. We're looking for like one standard deviation of difference between the two groups, which seemed seemed pretty fair to hope there would be some kind of change. Um, and I was disappointed that it wasn't. Um, but I agree that I don't think SIM is necessarily the right place where you're going to develop those skills that are going to take years and years to actually refine. And I also think med students aren't necessarily always at the kind of stage where they're going to be developing brilliant clinical reasoning. They're kind of at the the fact learning stage somewhere and I think they were using a very sophisticated test fairly early in someone's career. I do like the study in particular as kind of just a talking point that we've got to be accountable and really think about what we say SIM can achieve and not using it as a um, kind of everything, you know, what do you call it? throw in the kitchen sink and we'll just throw sim at people and everything will get better. And I thought that the authors kind of acknowledged that nicely by acknowledging that there is good evidence that it, you know, helps with team-based behaviours and communication and crisis resource management. But for this study, when it came to teaching clinical reasoning, it didn't make any kind of difference, which I thought was good. Yeah, and I also think good on them for publishing a so-called negative study because... This is the kind of information we have to have. 
there's no point in just going, hey, look at what we did, and by the way, then we thought we'd measure it, and hey, look, it's great, everyone loved it. That is not going to advance the field. Um, anything else is really hard, though. So I take my hat off to people who've put in the hard yards and found something that maybe they didn't want to find, uh, and yet they're letting the rest of us know because you know we really need to build on that and investigate what are the things that make a difference uh, and what are the things that don't, and also what are the marginal gains for the investment that we're putting in. So, um, as I said, I, I enjoyed reading it. Um, I wasn't entirely surprised by the outcome, and uh, I also just need to go and read about script concordance testing again too. <laughs> just in your spare time. Yeah. All right, Ben, what are we doing next month? Yeah, so look, uh, you've inspired me, Vic, because I got to go down and see your team at work uh, doing some rapid cycle deliberate practice on Monday. And the thing, well, there were many things that stood out for me, but actually the thing that was new for me, being particularly a PEM who works exclusively in pediatrics and therefore mostly uses, well, always is the honest answer, uses mannequins for my sims, was how talented your uh, standardized patients were. And uh, so fortuitously, and I know you've covered this a little bit in a blog already, but um, the Association of Standardized Patient Educators have released their standards of best practice in advances in simulation. And I thought I'd have a look, and uh, I think it's just a fantastic kind of introduction to... Uh, using standardized patients or simulated patients uh, as well as a really great overview for someone who hasn't necessarily used them before or who wants to know how to use them more effectively and uh, how to make sure that those uh, standardized patients are looked after as well. So we're going to look at that article by uh, Karen Lewis et al. in Advances in Simulation 2017. Fantastic. Well, we'll look forward to that and I have a feeling... There's at least one or two of those talented simulated patients who might join us for at least part of that uh, podcast next month. Oh, that'd be great. Excellent. All right, well, um, encourage everybody yet again, get on the website, uh, simulationpodcast.com. Tell us your thoughts about the paper and anything else you've got to tell us and give us feedback on the podcast as well. And don't forget to rate us on iTunes. So thanks again for a great month, Ben. Yeah, thanks a lot. It was good. And yeah, please do come along and comment. Cheers. You're listening to Simulcast, a podcast about healthcare simulation.